My name is Shelly Zulsdorf, and I am the Director of Student Ministries, thanks Sage, and I'm super excited to be with you all this morning and continue our series on John. Now, if you were here last week, uh, Ben Kearns opened us up with an introduction of the book of John. We're going to be spending the next couple of weeks studying John, reading through it. And last week, Ben Kearns gave you a mouge bouge, I think is what he called it, of John, right? So just a little teaser, a little, a little teaser of what we're going to be looking into, diving into. And I want to encourage you, if you didn't this past week, to be reading through the chapters. We're going to go chapter by chapter. So it gives you an opportunity in your week to spend the whole week looking at that chapter. Maybe you just read it once and you take a couple verses and you just read it a little at a time. Maybe you read the chapter every day and you see what is God stirring up in you. And, and as the pastoral team, we're gonna share what God showed us through that chapter and what God has to say. And so I get to share a little bit with John 1. So we're starting John 1 um, and yeah, we get to dive into that this morning. But I want to start, before I dive into the passage, I want to start with this question. What stirs your heart? What stirs your heart? The, some laughing. Yeah, there's a lot that probably stirs your heart. A lot, especially in this last year that has happened. And the purpose of stirring is to awaken a desire to act. To awaken a desire to act. So you think, if you're a parent... And in the morning, you stir your kid to get out of bed, right? You're stirring, awakening the desire for them to get out of bed and go to school, right? That's what stirring does. It awakens this desire to act. It's the opposite of idleness, and it's directly connected to action. So when I think, what stirs my heart? The first sort of response that I have is things that get me excited, Right? The things that bring joy to my heart, that stir me with so much excitement. And if you know me a little bit, um, you would know that I love the farm life. I love farms. Now, some of you are like, that does not stir my heart whatsoever. You're like, it smells. It's a lot of work, Shelly. Do you know that? Do you know how much work it is? It's like 24-7. And the animals cost a lot of money. Well, yes, I actually grew up um, going to a farm and working on a farm most of my life, and I love it. I love the smells. I love the hard, hard day's work that you have on the farm. I love all the pieces of taking care of the animals, taking care of the land. It brings my heart so much joy. And so when I feel this stirring in my heart around a farm, I definitely, what I tend to do is I go and I drive out to the countryside. I don't live on a farm now. We live in California. Not all of us can do that. So I drive out to the countryside or I garden in my yard because that's what, when I get stirred up, I'm like, oh, I got to do something about it. But maybe when you think what stirs your heart, you think of what breaks your heart. What breaks your heart or what makes you angry? What makes you so mad? And maybe it's specific tensions that you're facing in your family, your community. Maybe it's specific tensions that are happening in our country or specific tensions that are happening in the world that just make you so irritated, so mad, or even just brokenhearted that you just want to cry. That you are broken down over the injustices, the brokenness, and the pain that's happening within our world. And it tends, when it gets stirred up in you, you tend to want to, to act on it. 
It's awakening that desire to act and you have to do something. And so sometimes we turn to social media and we repost something or we vent about what is breaking our heart. Or we go and we go, I gotta figure out a way to serve, to solve this problem. Maybe there's something when you go and look at the service booth out there that you're like, wow, that's what God has been breaking my heart for. And I wanna be a part of that and I wanna do something with that. For me, when I was in college, it was the first time I heard about the injustice around sex trafficking. The first time that I heard, man, this is happening around the world, that people are are in bondage and are forced to do this. And it broke my heart. And I couldn't just sit there. I couldn't just sit still. And I was like, what do I do as a college student? I, I don't know where to go or what to do. And so I partnered with our campus ministry and we brought IJM, International Justice Mission, to our campus and brought an awareness week, a whole week that we brought awareness to students and said, let's start there. Let's bring awareness to that. See, that stirring in me, that frustration, that anger that was within me, I had to do something about it. It couldn't just sit. But I want to ask this, what about Jesus? Does who he is stir your heart today in the same way that the things of this world stir your heart? The things of this world that get you riled up with excitement or brokenness or anger and you feel like you have to do something, does Jesus have that same stirring in your life that makes you want to act. When I looked up the definition of stir, stirring, one of, it, one of the definitions was to disturb the quiet of. To disturb the quiet of, which sometimes feels like my walk with the Lord. It's disturbing some of the places where I feel content or comfortable. God wants to disturb that because he wants me to be aware. And the synonym it gave was agitate. Agitate, and I love that because normally you think agitate as like, I'm so agitated at that person. And we think of it in a negative way, but agitate means to excite and often trouble the mind and feelings. And when we think, man, following Jesus and walking with Jesus, he is stirring us in a way. He wants to agitate us in a way that's exciting and both troubling because it's causing us to change. It's causing us to move in a different direction, to leave some of the old things behind and to move towards him, which is uncomfortable which can be troubling, but also can be exciting. And so this morning, I want to dive deep into how Jesus stirs our heart. I want to look at John 1, 35 through 42, where Jesus calls his first disciples, and these disciples were with John the Baptist. They were hanging around John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was a prophet who was preparing the way for Jesus, preparing the way, preparing the people for Jesus. And here's where we see John's followers move and shift towards Jesus. So let's take a look at this. John 1, 35 through 42. It says, the next day, John, that's John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had, been follow- and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You would be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. 
Goodness, this passage is so encouraging to me. It's encouraging because it shows how Jesus is stirring us up, how Jesus is stirring the disciples to come and see, to come and see him, to go a little bit deeper. And here's some things when I look through the story of what I'm encouraged by. The first is to be stirred by Jesus, we need to behold Jesus. We need to behold Jesus. John the Baptist was telling his disciples to look at the Lamb of God. Look at the Lamb of God. But here's the thing. In what we just read, this was not the first time that John told his disciples to look at the Lamb of God. In verse 29, just a few verses before that, which is the day before, Jesus walked by and John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's whole purpose was to point others to Jesus. His whole purpose was to say, there he is. There's the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, the one who's greater than me. He is here. Everything he did was to point others to Christ, but they missed it. His disciples missed it at first. It took them twice to finally hear what John was saying and to then go and follow to then go and follow Jesus. And here's what I think happened. I think on that first time, they must have taken a quick glance. They must have just quickly looked at Jesus and went, cool, and looked right back at John because they were fascinated by John and they were missing out on Jesus. And so they took this quick glance. But when we look, it says, look, the Lamb of God. In other translations, it says, behold, Behold, and I wanted to use the verse, look. I wanted to use the translations, look, so it could create that clear picture. But in other translations, it's behold, which is not a word that we use all the time, behold something. And when we think of the word behold, here's what it is. It's a picture of a steady, long look. It's a steady, long look at the Lamb of God, a steady, long look at Jesus. And beholding is looking something up and down. It's studying every detail in order to get a full picture and a full description of what is happening. It's a posture of leaning in, a posture of leaning in. So he's saying, behold. And what the disciples did first, I think they just looked. It was a quick glance over at Jesus, but they didn't truly behold Jesus, look long and steady at him with focus and curiosity. And when I think of this word behold, I think of um, something that I was told growing up riding horses. So I rode horses most of my life. And you are constantly told when riding horses to keep your eyes up. You're constantly told to be looking up and not down. Now, new riders really struggle with this. New riders, they want to look at the horse because the horse is what feels like is in front of them. The horse is under them. They can see and know and understand the horse being there, then they can look out and looking at something ambiguous out in the distance. It's harder for them to look out. But here's the thing. The moment you look down when you're horseback riding, your trainer immediately yells at you to look up. Your trainer immediately says, eyes up, eyes up on everything that you do. The moment you look down, you're told to look up. And here's why. Because horseback riders know their eyes guide their posture. Where their eyes go, there they will go. So if your eyes are looking down, your whole posture falls down. And when, with horseback riding, if your whole posture is falling down, that means you're most likely going to fall off because you are headed in that direction. And the horse can actually feel it under you. The horse can feel you looking down, and the horse is like, I don't know if you want to do this. 
I don't know if you want to go forward because you are looking down. So I'm guessing you want to go down. A lot of times horses refuse jumps when the rider is looking down because they're like, you don't want to jump this jump because you're not looking up. And so the riders, you know, your eyes direct your body. Your eyes direct the whole posture of your body. You look right, that means you want to go right. You look left, your body shifts to the left. And here's the thing, where you look has power. Where you look has power because what you look at will lead the posture of your heart. It will lead the posture of where you are going. And John knew this. John knew this. And so when he said, behold, he is saying, man, I want you to shift your posture away from me and towards the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world, the one who's greater than me, the one that you are searching for. Behold, shift your posture. Look longingly, steadily, with focus towards Jesus. And it's not a quick glance. Man, we cannot see all of who Jesus is if we just quickly look at him, if we just quickly spend time with him. We can't fully see all of who he is, but we are called to behold him, to behold him with fascination, to behold him with curiosity as the one who has captivated so many hearts and is captivating each of ours over and over and over again. Don't you want to keep looking at him? Don't you want to keep wondering why? Who are you? I want to study and know more. That's beholding. It's longing. It's it's looking at him long enough to be captivated to want to investigate more. And that's what happened on that second glance. The disciples finally looked at Jesus, fully looking at him, and they were captivated. And it led them to investigate and want to follow. Who is this that John is asking us to behold. And so in that moment, their posture moved away from John, which brought him joy and towards Jesus. And now they're heading in that direction. And what I love in this passage is the first words of Jesus in this whole gospel, the first words that are recorded in the gospel, not the first words Jesus ever said, but their significance that, that the, the author of John wrote these words down as Jesus's first words. And those are the words, what do you want? Those were Jesus' first written words in this gospel was, what do you want? And here the disciples, they changed their posture towards Jesus. And Jesus didn't start off by going, welcome. This is who I am. This is what's going on. This is all the things you need. No, he invited them in. And he asked them, what do you want? Which is such an invitation because he wanted to reach the deep desires of our hearts. He wanted to reach deep down. He wanted us to come along with him. And Jesus, man, he is so good because his starting point is our starting point. His starting point is with where we are at. He wants to meet us today with what we are struggling with, what we are searching, what we are longing, our stories, our pain. He's like, I want to start there. Because Jesus is in, his work is redemption. And if he's going to redeem each of us, he knows he has to meet us in every season, every crossroad with our deep desires. And to him, that is worth it. Because that means that he's going to go deeper with you. That you are going to be connected to him in a deeper and deeper way. And I love this initial question, the initial words Jesus says in this gospel, what do you want? And I see it as a theme all throughout the gospel of John. 
where every story when he encounters someone, uh, Jesus' presence brings this question forward, whether explicitly or implicitly and just being there. We see we're going to read the woman at the well where the woman asked for water. And Jesus says, man, I'll give you that, but I'm also going to give you living water. He knows what she's really looking for. Feeding the 5,000, we'll read, explains, after he feeds them, he then explains, like, I am the bread of life. Man, that's what you're searching for, but I need to know what you're looking for. And he raises Lazarus from the dead and explains that he is the resurrection and the life. I can raise Lazarus from the dead. I can help you with what you want, but man, what you're looking for is the resurrection and life, and that is who Jesus is. Now, let me tell you this. Jesus' character doesn't change. He's not changing who he is for every single person. No, but in his grace and love, he chooses to meet us where we are at and take us a little bit deeper into who he is, a little bit more into his character. We get revealed more and more of the vastness of who he is. And he wants to meet us at every crossroads and stir that desire up so that we can know more of him. And so in every new season in Crossroad, Jesus is asking us, what do you want? What do you want? Because he's asking this because he wants to draw you closer to him. He's asking this because he wants to draw you deeper and deeper. But if we're honest, I don't think we really know most times what we really want. I don't think we really fully understand what it is that we want. When someone asks that question, it can feel super overwhelming. What do you want? I don't know. And the disciples, they didn't even answer the question. They didn't even answer the question when Jesus asked this. Instead, they said, where are you staying? That's, what do you mean? (laughs) That's not the answer to the question. Like, he asked, what do you want? Not, where are you going? Or what's happening? Like, no. Instead, he, but he answers this. He takes their, their wanting to be with him. And this asking, what do you really want? It's like Jesus is saying that he is hoping that you will accept his invitation to come and see the goodness that he has for you. He's saying, what do you want? He's saying, man, come. Man, I got what you want. What do you want? Let's, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. But he wants to invite you into that because he can't speak into something that you aren't going to let him come into. He wants you to come and see. That's his invitations. And so the disciples, man, they spent a whole day They spent a whole day with Jesus. We see that they spent all afternoon. And I'm so curious of what that conversation looks like. But man, we are not blessed with that. We don't know what he said to them. We don't know what questions they might have asked or what they might have seen. But we know that at the end of that long day, their hearts were stirred. There was a desire stirred within them. And they went running out and said they found the Messiah. And when we look through the Gospels, they didn't really fully understand this. They said, we found the Messiah, but we see over and over, they had no idea. They didn't understand what this actually meant. And it wasn't until Jesus died and rose again that they go, oh, yeah, we found the Messiah. Now we get it. That's three years of journeying with Christ, sitting in that question, what do you want? Having God stir up that desire to go deeper and deeper with him to come and see what he has to offer. Three years, a long day, but then three years. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope that I don't have to rush this question, what do you want? 
Because I think if I try to rush that question, I'm only looking for the easy answer. I'm only looking for instant gratification that can be found within this world. The very surface level things, that I'm hungry so I need food, that I'm thirsty so I need water. But God doesn't want to give us the easy answer. He wants us to be with him. And so he wants to draw us deeper and deeper. And over that time, he's going to reveal more and more of what we want. And it could take a long time. It could take months or years for us to sit in that crossroads when we're in the new crossroads of our faith and go, man, what do I actually want? God, draw me into you. Let me see you. Because if we're leaning into the first thing that God showed us about him, when maybe we first started walking with Christ, that's fine. But God has more. He wants to, to take you deeper than what he first revealed to you, or even what he showed you two years ago. Those are good starting places that are going to keep launching you deeper and deeper. He wants to, he, who he is, is so vast that he wants us to behold him. If we were just leaning into something two months ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, when we first started walking with Christ, then man, we can easily look away instead of beholding, God, I know you have more to show me. As I'm in this new crossroads of faith or new season, God, reveal to me more of who you are. And this takes time. It's a long process. For me, I've been sitting with this question of what do you want for a couple months? I feel like I'm in this new season of faith, this new crossroads where God's inviting me to go deeper. And if I'm honest, I have no idea what he is wanting to stir in me. I just know that my spirit, my soul is feeling agitated that I want to go deeper with him, that I want to see more of who he is, that I want to see more of his character and more of what he has for us. And whenever he's agitating us and stirring our hearts, it overflows. It overflows. And we see in this passage, Andrew is stirred up by Jesus that he ran to go tell Peter about what just happened. This is the first thing he did. He spent time and he's like, oh my gosh, there's something stirring up with inside me. I'm with Jesus and I think I found the Messiah. And I love that he's like a giddy child and running out. And he goes and finds Peter and, he's, and he tells him, I have found the Messiah. We have, the disciples said, we have found the Messiah. And what I love is that he doesn't say to Peter, you haven't found the Messiah. Come on over here. You got to get it. No, he's talking to Peter and sharing with Peter what God is stirring up in his heart. He's sharing with Peter what he has found, what he's going deeper with God. He doesn't fully understand it, but man, he wants to share it. And when we read the story of Andrew and you see his name throughout the gospels, almost every time that he's mentioned, he is sharing Jesus with someone. And, and not sharing, but he's inviting others to come and see. He's inviting others like, oh my gosh, check this out. He's inviting others into the journey. And I love that because Andrew is so fascinated by Jesus. He's beholding Jesus constantly that he wants to invite others into what God is stirring in his heart. And when, when we're stirred up by Christ, it should overflow into every area of our life because stirring is not supposed to be contained. Remember, stirring awakens our desire to then move towards action. So stirring is not supposed to be kept in a bowl, safe and to ourselves, but it's supposed to overflow. And I think of this Jesus stirring within us like a child baking. 
I used to nanny in college, and I love to do baking projects with them. Now, I'm going to let you know I am not a baker. Our two student ministry interns are total bakers. Katie and Harrison, so good. They make delicious stuff. Not me. I'm like, I'm just in it for the fun. Um, but whenever you bake with a child, isn't it so interesting that they are not afraid to get messy? They're usually not afraid to get messy. They, they get so excited with the flour when you put the flour in, it like puffs up. They're so excited to stir that. And it just starts spilling everywhere. It goes all over. If you bake with a child, it goes all over. They're super uncoordinated with baking, but they're not afraid to get messy. They're fearless and overjoyed to just get to partake. And it's usually the adults who are stressed out and worried when they're baking with a child. The adults are looking over and going, someone's gonna clean this up. It's going to be me and you, we're gonna do this together, but it's mostly gonna be me, so keep it contained. Like we're the ones that wanna keep it contained and not let the joy of it overflowing and the process of it overflow into a mess. We as adults tend to be more stressed out the child is so excited, they don't care if it spills out. They don't care if what's stirring up is spilling out onto others. And who God is and how he is meeting our desires should overflow into all areas of our life. But in all honesty, it's vulnerable. It's scary. It can feel overwhelming. We tend to want to keep what God's stirring to ourselves because that feels safe. And many times we're more like the parent in the baking scenario where we become worried or fearful of the mess that with what God is stirring, of maybe what others are going to think about us if we were to share what God is stirring up in us. And for me, I'm learning this hard lesson that overflow is messy. Overflow is messy because vulnerability is messy. Because not fully understanding what God is stirring up in us and not having all the answers feels messy because saying, I don't know, but God's doing something in my life feels messy because we feel like we have to have all the answers. We feel like we have to put it all together before it can overflow. But man, Andrew showed to us, he risked ridicule. He lived in a culture that saying, I have found the Messiah is a big deal. And people would be asking for answers. And what do you mean? Tell us more. And so he risked that with such a bold statement. He risked it even though he didn't fully understand it. Even though he didn't fully understand what he had found, what God was stirring up in him, he said it was too good to not share. It was too good. And he had no idea when he ran to Peter, he had no idea who Peter was going to be for the church, who Jesus was calling him the rock. He had no idea that Peter would, would take Jesus's mission and continue it. He had no idea. Peter didn't categorize or create favorites with who he told. It just overflowed. And the mess that overflowed was so beautiful because what Andrew was overflowing was an invitation an invitation into what he was discovering about his desires, of what God was stirring up in him. It was an invitation to that. It was an invitation to look at Jesus together, to behold Jesus together. May it comes, may God, I found the Messiah, come, let's look at him together, to behold together. And this invitation should be flowing into all areas of our lives because Jesus has you where you are for a reason, for a purpose. Jesus has you in your work, your neighborhood, your community, your family, your friendships to overflow his love. 
You don't have to have all the answers to figure that out. You don't have to have all the answers to overflow, but we can be like Andrew where he goes, man, I just want people to know what God has been stirring up in me. And so what we can know is as messy as it can be, God is stirring us to draw deeper with him, but he's doing it for his glory. He's doing it for his glory, and this glory, his glory cannot be contained. It is bound to overflow. So isn't it good news that God lets us be a part of that, that he lets what he's stirring up in us to overflow out into our communities because his glory is going to overflow. It's something that's stirring up, and it needs to be everywhere. And so I want to encourage you throughout this series, throughout as you're sitting in your devotional time, reading John, reading each chapter, whether all in one week, a little bit at a time, to sit with what God is stirring up in you, to sit with what are the desires that he's stirring up with the question, what do I want? When Jesus asks, what do you want? What is he stirring up? Maybe it's one word. Maybe it's one truth. Maybe it's who Jesus is, that in this new season, in this new crossroads, Jesus needs to stir this up in you for you to see because he wants to take you deeper. He wants you to know more of who he is. He wants you to know all of who he is, but he's going to take the time to show you in different seasons of your life more of his character. And so when we sit in that and we're stirred up, it changes our posture It changes our posture towards him. It changes our posture when we behold him, when we look to him and we say, okay, God, you know what I want. You know what my heart is longing for. And so I'm going to look to behold you, Jesus. And what you are stirring up in my soul, I'm going to know that you are going to reveal to me in time over a long process to show me what it is that I'm craving in this season. So this morning, we're going to worship We're going to sing these songs, but I want you to have a posture of beholding Jesus. I want you to have a posture where you're sitting and you're going, man, what do I want in this new season? What do I want in this new crossroads of my faith that Jesus, you know? And so Jesus, I'm going to look to you long and steady and with focus, knowing that only you can answer that. Knowing that when I behold you, you are going to take me and and take me deeper and deeper in who you are in your love and show me new things. And that is what will overflow. When we behold him and allow him to stir us up, that is what will overflow. So let me pray, and then we're going to enter into a time of worship. Jesus, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are so gracious with us. You are so patient with us. And you are willing to meet us where we are at in order to take us deeper. And your heart's desire is that we would know more of who you are, that we would dive deeper into our desires to then see you. So Jesus, as we worship this morning, may we behold you. May we sit and look at you and all of who you are, knowing that only you can answer what do we want. So we love you, Jesus, and we thank you for all of who you are in your awesome and truly precious name. Amen.